um, I believe it was a hike in the Poconos uh, with Amanda's family. There was about 20 of us in a cabin in the Poconos. We find out that Amanda's mom is in the hospital. Okay. Um, we thought and kind of were making fun of her that she drinks too much tea, so maybe she... Um, Wow, my brain just went blank. What is that when you get drink too much tea? Kidney stones. We were joking as kids uh, that she has kidney stones because she drinks so much tea. But then we find out that it's more serious that it's her heart. And we're taken back because we're thinking she's so healthy. I mean, this is Mammy, as our kids call her, that runs around with them and still plays with them. What is going on? Um, and thankfully... She is doing okay. She did have to have surgery on her aorta. Um, she had an aneurysm there, but thankfully she's okay, and she is back home right now resting. Well, just in praying about this situation and thinking about it, a song uh, came to mind, and that's a song I want to show you today, and that song is You've Already Won. In the midst of that, for the family members, having to think that at night as we're going to bed could my mother-in-law potentially not be here in the morning? Lord, what is happening? What is going on? The song that we're going to sing has helped me, and it has helped my in-laws as well, because in life, we're going to face difficulties. We're going to face, as Pastor talked about, disappointment and discouragement. We, we live in a world that is full of sin and is cursed and how do we respond to it? The song we're going to sing, or not sing, listen to, is by Shane and Shane. It's called You've Already Won. Let me uh, say the first lyrics for you, the first verse. It says, I'm fighting a battle. He's already won. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. Don't know what he's doing, but I know what he's done. I'm fighting a battle. He's already won. This ties into our message of grace today because we have to see that God has given us grace that has declared us righteous, but he's also given us grace that will persevere to the end, that we can have hope. We can have hope because we know what God has done for us, and we know what God is going to do for us. So let's enjoy this song, You've Already Won.
are fighting a battle that the Lord has already won. 
and it should change the way we live. My title for our message today is Empowered by the Grace, by His Grace, Empowered by His Grace. My sermon today is going to be a little bit different. It's just on one verse. It's not your typical expositional sermon, but I want to highlight a key theological theme that's found in this passage. When you are reading any book of literature, you want to be able to, before you really dive into it, isolate a few sentences of the text that help you understand the author's main argument. Why did they write this book? Under what circumstance was the book written? What is the purpose in writing it? It's not only a good thing in literature, but it's also a good thing when you're reading the Bible because you want to know the reason behind why the author wrote the words, the chapter, and the paragraph. You want to understand what the purpose of it is. And today I believe that this text, Titus chapter 2 verse 11, is one of the best texts that explains the purpose of the Bible. When you understand what Paul is saying in verse 11, you will understand what God is doing from Genesis to Revelation. When you come to the Bible, you see that there is a lot of instructions on how to live, on what to do and what not to do. And see, what Paul does in this uh, letter to the church in Crete is he's talking to them about enduring despite the opposition that they're facing from legalistic Judaizers as well as ungodly Gentiles within the midst. In chapter 1, Paul establishes leaders in the church, elders who have moral character and will shepherd the flock. In chapters 2 and 3, he instructs them on how they should live out their lives as godly men and women, both old and young. But Paul wasn't only concerned about their behavior. You see, he was concerned about what they believed because he understood that what you believe affects the way that you live. Uh, As A.W. Tozer says, what you believe about God changes everything in your life. And this is what makes this verse so important because I want you to grasp what the grace of God means. Once you've expected it, examined it, scrutinized it, it's going to change the trajectory of your life. You're going to be able to sing a song like we just did that he's already won. You're going to be able to go through trials and difficulties in life with hope because of the empowering of the grace of God. You see, Paul had just finished in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2 explaining different categories of people in the church and how they were supposed to conduct themselves as saints And now he wants to tell them how you get the power to do that. So that's what I want to do today because I can't tell, as the passage talks about earlier, men to be sober-minded unless they understand that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. I can't tell older women to be reverent unless they grasp the grace of God has appeared. You see, the grace of God empowers us to live with hope and obedience. I want you to see this tonight, and we're going to answer four questions just in this one verse. Let me read this verse again to you. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The first question we want to answer is, what is the grace of God? 
Grace is an important word in the Bible. In the New Testament, it's seen 131 times in our ESV, and 124 times it's in the New Testament. Paul uses the word grace 86 times, and the phrase the grace of God is used 18 times. Paul uses it 13 times. The grace of God as defined by Jerry Bridges, which I believe is one of the clearest explanations, is this. Grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. It is the love of God shown to the unlovely. It is God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. And I love that last phrase. It's God reaching downward to people who are in rebellion against him. You see, you need to understand that all world religions say you must do something, that there is merit, that you have to do something in order to earn God's favor. But not just all world religions, even mainline we would call, uh, the society would call quote-unquote Christianity says that you need to work on the merit system. In Judaism, you must obey the Torah and the customs. Roman Catholicism, you must do the sacraments. In Islam, you must do the five pillars of faith successfully. In Mormonism, you must be baptized, follow the book of Mormon written by Joseph Smith. And if you didn't know, you also need to have someone, when you ascend into heaven, be baptized on earth for you in order for you to merit favor with God. Jehovah's Witness, you need to do works and have perfect obedience to Jehovah. In Hinduism, you need to purify oneself from all evil in this life and in the afterlife and then the life after. In Buddhism, you must renounce yourself in order to reach nirvana. All the religions of the world, their default says that you must do something. But it's not just world religions. Even in our society, in America, with so many atheists and agnostic, you must be in compliance with some philosophy or system or you'll be canceled. You must ascribe to the political views of Fox News or MSNBC. You must be true to yourself, or you'll be deleted, canceled. In every single one of these that I've listened, the burden is on the human being to do something, achieve something, comply with something in order to merit the favor of God and in order to get into heaven. Religions say do, but our God says it is done. Biblical Christianity is the only one where the offer and burden for accomplishing our salvation rests solely with God. Man can't do anything to earn it nor to deserve it. You see, God does it. He does it all. You see, in the business world, when a company goes bankrupt, all the debts are paid off, but they're not necessarily paid in full. Creditors will come in, and they will sell the company and its assets. If you didn't know, uh, Bed Bath & Beyond just filed for bankruptcy, sadly. I like that place, actually. (laughs) My mom got me good stuff for college from there. So what will happen in this bankruptcy sale is they'll sell everything off, but they're never going to meet everything that the creditors are owed. So the creditors are not happy because they didn't get all their money that they lended out. And the business should feel guilty because if they've developed personal relationships, they weren't able to pay off this debt. You and I 
are bankrupt in God's eyes, but that's where his grace steps in. Our total debt has been paid in full. God is satisfied, and here's the thing. We are also satisfied, too, as a believer in Jesus Christ because we don't do anything to earn it, nor do we do anything to deserve it, so we can't do anything to lose it. He's, he has us, and he's going to work in us. You see, not only that, the debt has been paid in full. There's no possibility of us ever going into debt again. Our debt is paid past, present, and future. As Paul says in Colossians 2.13, God forgave us all our sins. All of them. We don't have to start over and over again keeping the slate clean. There is no more state. Author Steve Brown says this, God took our slate and he broke it in pieces and threw it away. This is true not only for our justification, but for our Christian lives as well. God is not keeping score, granting or withholding blessing on the basis of our performance. The score has already been settled by Christ. Grace is what every man needs, what none can earn, and what God only can do. So then, who is this grace? For the grace of God, again, has appeared. The word appear is most commonly used to signify the appearance of Christ on earth, either in his first or second coming. Paul expresses the reality of God's salvation for humanity has come through the risen Savior. In Greek antiquity, the word for appear would have been the word epiphany, which was used of the sudden appearance of an enemy before an unexpected battle. So, for example, in 27 B.C., Daphne, defeat of the Gauls, was credited to the epiphany of Apollo. And do you know what Paul's doing? You have to notice this. In the Greek, what he's trying to do to people is using their languages and their terms and turning it upside down. He's saying that the epiphany, the sudden appearing of Christ in the first coming, defeated the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And the future appearing of Christ, the glory of our God and great Savior, will bring the defeat to Satan and the, one day the presence of sin. Here's what you and I need to understand. God did not want a long-distance relationship with us. Okay? You need to understand this. He didn't want to just do some phone calls. Maybe if uh, some of you guys were you actually wrote letters. He didn't want to just love you from a distance. And he didn't just say, I love you. He didn't just give you gifts. He didn't just say, here's benefits of grace. No, the grace of God has appeared. God's grace has been manifest in our world. He has come to dwell with us. Do you get this? No more long-distance relationship for us with God. His original intention was to dwell with mankind forever, but that was broken at the Garden of Eden. But he's always wanted to dwell with us. The Son of God came in flesh in order to be the Savior of all mankind. In Galatians, it talks about this. To be born under the law because all of us have failed to fulfill God's law, Christ came in the flesh under the law to fulfill the law on our behalf. Second, it was necessary for the Savior to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 10, 5 says this. Sacrifice and offering 
under the old covenant you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. Without the incarnation, we would not be saved because Christ had to come in order to save us. Paul later says in Titus 3, verse 4 and 5, when the goodness and loving kindness of, our, of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal. Another implication of the appearing of Christ is this. Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, notice this word again, graciously give us all things? Jesus left the side of the Father to come to be with us. Again, to come and live in a fragile human body to understand us. He, he understands us. He understands the difficulties and the infirmities of life. He came to be touched, to be seen, to be loved, and ultimately to die for us. Spurgeon talks about this when he says, Behind us is our trust. Before us is our hope. Behind us is the Son of God in humiliation. Before us is the, is the great God, our Savior, in his glory. Or we could say, I see what God has done in his first coming, and I know what he's going to do in his second coming. And that's how we are empowered by his grace, because we look to the cross and we can trust him, because if he gave it all for us, we can trust him that he's going to be there for us in this life. And we know that we can face the difficulty because on the other side, when he comes back again, he's going to rule and reign and sin will be destroyed. We can trust him. You may say to God today, I don't know what you're doing, and I don't like it. God, I don't like what's going on in my family right now. I don't like how my kids are. I don't like how my spouse is. I don't understand what's going on with my mother-in-law's house. I don't understand what's going on with the brokenness and family members that are in my life. I don't know what's going on in the world with wars and rumors of Lord. But Lord, I know what you have done for me, and I know what you're going to do for me. So what we need to do is to preach the gospel to ourselves and not self-affirmation, but affirm ourselves in the truth of God's word. And here's one of the things I would encourage you to do. Talk to yourself about what God has done. God, I know what you've done. You have purchased me. You've pulled me out of the domain of darkness into your kingdom. You have adopted me into your family. I am your child. This is what you have done. You have redeemed me by the blood of the lamb and by that blood forgave me of all my sin and reconciled me to yourself. That's what you've done. But you didn't just forgive me of my sins. You became sin on my behalf that I may have life in you, that I am free, that my record is perfect now. That's what you've done. And you didn't just do this for me. You gave me your Holy Spirit to dwell with me, that I have him as my guide, my seal, my comforter. I am a co-heir with you. Everything I have is in Christ. I am in Christ. We need to preach what Christ has done for us, but not only that, 
what he's going to do for us. What is he going to do? He is going to restore you spiritually. You will forever be with God in a perfect relationship with him. He's going to restore us physically. There's going to be no more sickness, no more aches and pains, no more aging, no more death. That's what he's going to do. He's going to restore us socially. We're going to be in a perfect relationship with everyone in the new heaven and the new earth. No more fighting, no more bickering, no more arguing. What is he going to do for us? He's going to restore us emotionally. We're going to be in a place with everlasting joy and peace and purpose. There will be no more tears. What is he going to do for us? He's going to restore us morally. I will not have to wrestle with lust anymore. I will not have to tangle with bitterness anymore. I won't have to worry about keeping on sinning anymore. That's what he's going to do for us. I know what you've done, and I know what you're going to do. We need to preach that to ourselves every day. Why? Because the grace of God has appeared. What does the grace of God do? What did Jesus come to do? To save that which was lost. Jesus came to rescue those who were perishing. Find those who are wandering, those who were in danger. What does salvation mean? Because, you see, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. What does it mean? It's first, you and I need to understand that you are in real danger. And I mean real danger. I thought I was in danger when I was seven years old, and I was playing tennis in the front yard, and I hit the window, and it cracked, and I broke my window. I thought I was in danger, and I had to run away. I also thought I was in danger when I was in the backyard with my cousin Sam, and we were trying to chase the bunny rabbits, and we used a boomerang thinking it would go to hit the rabbit, come back, and we would kill it, but the boomerang went and killed the window and shattered the glass two times in one year. I thought I was dead, but that's not real danger. We're in grave danger the type of danger that's going to need the jaws of life to open up your car door. The jaws of life, I sadly got to experience that right after snow camp in 2020 when a car came and hit me from behind and my door was locked, and I saw them, the jaws of life, there to pry open the doors. That's the type of danger that you and I in. But it's not just that we were in danger You are brought out of danger into safety. You see, here's the thing you need to understand. If there is a fire that's going on in your house and the firefighter comes up and stands next to you, does it mean that you're saved now? No. He has to take you to a place of safety. Jesus brought you out of a place of grave danger and into a place of safety. But there's a major problem that will keep you from experiencing God's grace and salvation, and that is you and I's thoughts of self-righteousness. The Bible says that God is bringing salvation to all people, but some of us think that we don't need it or we live as if we are good enough. My works are good enough. And we may not ever say that, but we operate our lives sometimes as if God doesn't exist, as if we arrive, oh, I I just have a mistake. You know, it's just my temperament. We don't call sin for what it is, sin. 
Jesus says, though, in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. By the righteous, Jesus meant the self-righteous, those who didn't think they had need of him. Suppose that you're standing on the sidewalk outside church right after this service. You're standing there, and I suddenly grab you and pull you to the side and let's say it's a lady or a guy, I messed up your dress, I kind of tore it, and you got dirty and you hurt yourself. You'd be like, Pastor Artie, what's wrong with you? Why would you ever do that to me? You would say, there's nothing wrong, but what if I told you that you were actually in grave danger, that there was a drunk driver that was flying down Cruiser Road on the sidewalk that was about to hit you, and I pulled you out of the way? You see, you and I need to understand God's grace like that, that we are in grave danger and we needed him to save us. But we have a mistake that's happening in our lives, and I think it's a fallacy in how we view salvation. Some of us view salvation like this. We are drowning, we're there, we're waving our hands. God says he throws his life raft and he comes save you. When I was seven years old, I thought that I could swim I wanted to show off to my friends at the community pool in Lee Summit, Missouri. And so I went off the diving board. I had no idea what I was doing. But hey, I got to show people that, oh, I'm Lord. I know what I'm doing. Okay, I got it all. So I go, I jump off the diving board, and I go, and I, just so you know, I don't float. I just sink. So I'm just at the bottom, and I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I'm like there paddling, like not paddling, I'm just like, What's going on? What's going on? Thankfully, a lifeguard, and again, for me, I thought it was going to be as a seven-year-old, this is going to be this older teen girl will come and rescue me. You know, this is going to be uh, like this one of these scenes in the movie, but no, it was a guy that came to rescue me. No, I don't need CPR. I'm good. I didn't have any choking. That You see, we think salvation is me at the bottom flailing around, and God throws his life raft or comes down and picks us up. Here's what you need to understand about salvation. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Here's what you need to understand is that we weren't flailing around in the pool saying, God, save me. We were dead at the bottom of the pool with no hope. But Christ had to come and literally pick us up up, rescue us, regenerate us, and give us new life. When you understand his grace, that that's what he had to do for you, that you were, once you were dead in sins, but now you are alive to God, it will change the way you live your life. You will recognize that I really am that bad. But you need to understand that you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And yet, on the other hand, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. We're never so far away that God's grace can't track us down. And we're never so cleaned up that we don't absolutely need God's grace 100%. So who is this grace for? Again, this passage, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Who is this grace for? The grace of God is for 
all people. Doesn't matter your race, your gender, your nationality, your ethnicity. No one is excluded from God's grace. This would have been inspiring to the Gentile membership of the church that Paul is talking to in Crete. Okay? They would have been like me because they had Judaizers telling them that you had to obey Old Testament laws in order to merit God's favor. But they're also included. The grace of God is for everyone today. And if you remember back in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, it gives instructions to old men and young men and old women and young women and that their lives can be changed by the grace of God. Is it, is it really for all people? One statistic comes from a 2015 um, poll by the National Association of Evangelicals, and they learned that between the age of 4 and 14, 63% of decisions are made for Jesus Christ during this age. So now the organization, rightfully, such as Children's Evangelism Fellowship, Compassion International, and others, are putting effort into seeing kids come to Christ before they say, quote-unquote, it's not successful to see the grace of God penetrate the hearts. Well, I'm glad to say to you today that God's grace isn't limited by age. It's not. We have people here today that were saved at older ages, and you would say there's no way. God can make a way. God can do it. You see, Jesus gave his life for the old men in our society, those that were more concerned with investing in their 401ks and the Roth IRAs who have no self-control, indulging in pornography and other vices, he gave his life for them. Jesus gave his life for the older woman, the ones who are complainers and gossipers and backbiters, those who are consumed with fear and worry in life and easily agitated by change. He gave his life for her. Jesus gave his life for the young men who spend their time wasted on video games and sports and trying to see women as objects of their pleasures and not treating young girls as princesses and tenderly caring for them. Young men who lack integrity, he gave his grace for them. Jesus gave his grace for the young women who spend hours in the mirror working on their image and trying to glamorize themselves, who are consumed with body image and identity issues, who live life aimlessly. He gave his grace for them. Jesus came to save those who are lost, save those who are wandering, and save those who are weary. He came to rescue the prodigals, rescue the adulterers, and rescue the drug addicts. He came to redeem the Republican, redeem the Democrat, redeem the racist, redeem the woke. Jesus came to restore the weak, restore the vile, restore the poor. Your prodigal son or your prodigal daughter, he has come and his grace is sufficient. Your spouse that is pushing back against the gospel, his grace is sufficient for you. Your co-worker who doesn't understand the gospel at all, his grace is sufficient for them as well. God's Grace is sufficient, and it empowers us to live. And don't think for a second that his grace is only for the unsaved. Look at verse 12. His grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. 
The grace of God trains us. It's what empowers us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. No to self and yes to God. Not only that, Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 tells us that we can tap into his grace when we have need. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see what this passage is saying? Draw near to God with confidence because God wants you to draw near to him. God wants you to tap into his grace in order to live. For the grace of God that has appeared is bringing salvation for all people, your salvation in the past, your salvation in the present, and your future salvation. He has come and his grace is sufficient. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our church family would recognize that we do know how the story ends. We do know what you are doing. And we don't know, Lord, what you're doing, but we know what you are going to do. You're going to redeem it all. So may we be empowered by your matchless grace, the grace that we do not deserve. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen.